0: The Class of 2001 was hailed with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit from West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the Class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the War on Terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, These are the stories of those graduates as we look through the gray.
1: On this episode of Through the Gray, we'll be speaking with Richard Fox. Richard is a Air Force brat, but he currently lives in Las Vegas and calls it his hometown. While at West Point, Richard was in Charlie Company 2nd Regiment, Go Circus, and Bravo Company 2nd Regiment, Go Bulldogs. Richard participated in fencing and the Theater Arts Guild while at West Point. Richard branched field artillery and served at Fort Polk, then transitioned to military intelligence uh, while he was in his first tour to OIF-1. Richard then spent time at Fort Campbell and South Korea before completing active duty service in 2011. Richard deployed to Iraq twice, once in 2003 and once in 2007, and served as a fire support officer, company intelligence officer, battalion S-2, brigade staff officer, and Iraqi army trainer during his service as a field artillery and intelligence officer. Richard finished his active duty service as a brigade S-2. Richard left the active duty in 2011 and continued his work in the intelligence community at Jido and at Fort Huachuca. His science fiction writing career took off just as his contracting career dried up. He's been a full-time author ever since. Since that time, Richard has authored over 48 books, been nominated for the Nebula Award, and won the Dragon Award for Best Military Science Fiction or Fantasy Novel for his novel, Iron Dragoons. Richard earned a BS in military history and nuclear engineering. Welcome, Richard Fox. Through the Gray has its first sponsor, Urban Industrial Northwest. Urban Industrial Northwest is owned and operated by my childhood friend, Greg Hostetter. Greg and I grew up playing in the woods and hitting each other with sticks. I joined the military and Greg joined the trades. We both love the outdoors and the Pacific Northwest. Please visit his site and see the amazing work he and his team are creating. Urban Industrial Northwest is a furniture and fabrication company specializing in handcrafted products using heritage lumber deconstructed by architectural salvage companies from structures dating back to the late 1800s to early 1900s. Everything from their powder coated hardware to their top selling reclaimed wood desktops are carefully constructed by their team in shop to create one of a kind statement pieces for your home and office needs. Check them out on their Etsy store, Facebook, and Instagram. Or give them a call at 360-703-6936 and mention this ad for a 20% military discount on your order. And to top it off, shipping is free straight to your door nationwide. Urban Industrial Northwest, giving wood a third life from tree to structure to an awesome piece of furniture. Welcome Richard Fox and um thank you for joining us today. So what caused you um to apply to West Point.
0: So, uh, West Point. Uh, back when I was in junior high school, I went. I took a trip through the guidance counselor's office and found one of those sort of catalogs. They're all about West Point. Say, oh, here's all the classes you can take. Here's all the training. Here's what happens, everything, et cetera, et cetera. This was the mid-90s. And I'm looking at this, and I'm, and I'm thinking, this looks great. My mother was already in the Air Force, so I was kind of already getting into uh, the military sort of lifestyle. So i like, okay, West Point. This, this, this seems great. So back in middle school, I started tailoring my entire high school experience to getting into West Point. And then uh, my mother was stationed overseas in Okinawa and then uh, on an Air Force base. And I applied to the Air Force Academy and West Point and got accepted to both. And back when you're 18, uh, a lot of people around me said, Richard, you, you should go to the Air Force Academy instead. That way you could be in the Air Force. And as I was going through the whole uh, medical pre- uh, process, I, I learned that I was colorblind to a pretty decent extent. And because when you're that colorblind, they won't let you touch the aircraft or even try to fly them uh, because you'll crash, which I, which after I got some time to I just So, yeah, that's legit, not letting colorblind people do that. So my logic as the 18-year-old was, well, if I can't go fly the planes, I'll go jump out of them. <laughs> Take that, Air Force. So I went there. So I went to, Air, so I went to, to West Point and I never did go airborne <laughs> because of some of some of the injuries I sustained while as a cadet. So uh, but it was it came down to which service academy did I want to go to. And I chose I chose West Point.
1: So, I mean, the primer there was I mean, you said way back in like middle school, this is what I want to do. I want to go to a service academy. Um, and then you made the decision between the Air Force Academy and, the, and, and West Point. When you walked in, um, were you prepared?
0: I I did a lot of junior ROTC in high school, and so I, I think I I did pretty well uh, for getting to West Point. I mean, I'd been raised on military bases for many years. I'd been around military folks, so I kind of I kind of knew what, what what to expect. And I remember well, as a cadet, I get a lot of people would ask me like, "Are you prior service?" A, a lot, which the answer was no. I was not. I'd just been around so many military folks for so long. So I, I I was, I was pretty ready to be a cadet, but I was not quite ready for all the West Point stuff that was coming up. So. Can you elaborate upon that? Well, you know, it's for everyone who's been to West Point, you're, there's uh you, you really, you could, there's both folks there who love it and they love every single day of West Point. They just can't wait to, to, to wake up and be there again. And then there's other people who get there and they kind of have that that Job from uh, Arrested Development sort of moment where they look around and go, I have made an incredible mistake. And I think it was about like two weeks into Beast. Because I remember when I first got there, I was looking at all the the, the, the buildings and everything and like, wow, it's just like a castle. Two weeks later, I was going, wow, it's just like a prison. And it's kind of like, what did I get myself into? <laughs> and so... You know, it's, And uh, my West Point experience, uh, I'm going to rate it as being pretty poor overall. But I really, uh, I did enjoy the academic uh, education I got there. I thought that was top notch, and I did pick up a lot of really great skills uh, while I was there. When it comes to learning and uh, just just how you how you think and how you deal with stress and how you react to situations and learning to plan, and for that I was trained very well by West Point to be in the army. But while I was there, it was kind of like. I am not having a good time. And that lasted for about three years and 10 months of the experience was not having a good time. So you did um,
1: fencing uh, and the the Theater Arts Guild. Did that help kind of keep you motivated and focused uh, as you went through?
0: Well, for both the the fencing and Theater Arts Guild, they were were both things that were fun. I liked uh, helping organize all the shows that came in. And I got to you know work backstage and see how the lights work, and there was always lots of food or, or, or when Tag was around. And also it kept it got me away from the barracks, and away from you know other stuff that was you know not as much fun. To just go down to Eisenhower Hall and set up the set up the shows coming this weekend. That was fun. I liked it a lot. Fencing, I got to stab people. Well, who doesn't like that? You know. And for, as far as also for the fencing is that you got to leave and go on the to to the matches everywhere, and I was also, it was a lot of fun. So it was the the fencing and the theater arts guild. They were both kind of things where I could, you know, go and not be doing cadet stuff and have a good time. So I I really, I kind of enjoyed that. And then both, I won't say fencing helped me too much. in the, you know, in the latter world, but, uh, but being in the theater arts guild, I kind of started to get this nucleus for how to tell stories and how to be an entertainer and present things. So that was nice to get that, that sort of experience way back when.
1: And so just to, to follow that flow, military history was your your major and your minor was in, uh, in nuclear engineering. How did those two go?
0: Not well. Well, so military history, loved it. I, I, I had a great time with that. And back um, freshman year, plebe year, I'm talking to West Point person, I can say plebe, not how to explain it. Uh, back in plebe year and yuck year, I had done pretty well academically and I had my pick of tracks. And for some reason, there were a bunch of history majors who were in the nuke track. I don't know why. I don't know what 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 was the why that was, but I for somehow I like well, all these other people who are ahead of me are doing nuke. I might as well do nuke too, and that really brought my GPA way down. But um, but but however, going through the nuke track, it is an engineering track, and I did learn a lot about the process of how engineers think and how they plan and then also how uh, accessing all the information that was needed for for uh, that branch of engineering proved pretty useful when I became a field artillery officer. And then I also figured out, and I don't know who else uh, got this hacked too, but uh, as I was going through Nuke or uh, the track, I realized that the 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 WPRs were just the exact same questions from the quizzes, but with different Numbers. So it was the exact same format, but they just changed the numbers around. And then the T's were just the whip, the, 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 not the whip, please. The, it's been 20 years. Give me, give me a break. But the, the, the (laughs) the midterms, sorry. But the, but the, the finals were just the midterms with the, the, just the exact same questions with different numbers. And the, the important thing was not getting the right answer, but showing the process of how you reached that correct answer. And when I figured this out, what I started doing was uh, I had a TI-85 calculator. I would just go through and write down the approved solution to all the quizzes. And then I would and I would fail the quizzes miserably. But then when it came time for the, the midterms, I'd ace them because I had the exact format of how they wanted everything. And then I would ace the T's as well and barely pass. And my instructor was always like, Richard, you're awful in class and in homework, but with, when it comes time for the testing, you're you're really good. I'm like, Oh, thank you, sir. There shh, shh. you go. Know, that didn't want to spoil it for anyone else that I had just written down the the right way to get the answer on my phone. And that was not considered cheating at all because of, you know, taking notes that I was allowed to bring in. So yeah. Like, okay. That, that worked for me. Kept me out of staff. So.
1: I did, um, uh, comparative politics and environmental engineering. And, uh, I, I, I've used my poo water and my drinking water um, engineering uh, only in Iraq uh, and around my my current house.
0: (laughs) Yeah. In retrospect, I wish I'd taken systems. As I've gotten older, I realize that systems engineering is actually pretty cool and would have been a lot more useful. And then I think there's one of our classmates who was a systems engineer, not a U.S. citizen. And then when he got out of West Point, he parlayed his degree into a multi-six-figure job right away, so clearly systems engineer was the right. was the way to go, but
1: okay. yeah, it was, it was definitely uh, the gym I, I should have gone after. Um, so also you were in a group of military history um, that trended towards a certain branch, or at least I saw it within our class. Why did you choose uh, the branch that you chose?
0: Well, my first choice was military intelligence because it seemed cool. And then my, then I second choice uh, was field artillery, which I did get. And I had it to, to do all over again, I would have gotten better grades and gone to my pure. But uh, other than that, I sh- might have gone armor instead. So field artillery, my father was a field artilleryman in the Marine Corps. So I was also, I could tell myself, oh, I'm just following my father's footsteps. And field artillery, it was uh, it, it's, it's a good branch. But I was in, after I graduated, I went to uh, Fort Polk, not Fort Polk, uh, Fort Sill. And then from there, it was out to uh, Fort Polk with two ACR. And the artillery we had was old M198s, which are so decrepit, even the Ukrainians wouldn't want them to now. And uh, we did not do a whole lot of artillery during my deployment. And while I was deployed and we all the guns just sat in the parking lot, I'm like, there's no future here. I need to go do something else. And I put in a package to switch to MI uh, while I was in Iraq.
1: So, so talk me through um, Bullock uh, and then uh, Iraq 2003-2004 uh, and uh, arrival at 2CR. So basically the prep up to Iraq and then uh, what you saw in Iraq.
0: Right. I was at uh, – it was just called A- FAOBC back then. It wasn't Bullock yet. And we went to FAOBC, and I was there on 4-9-11. And, you know, we, we, was, we were actually there at class when all the stuff was happening and people. You, well we all remember what that was like and uh, not a lot of stuff changed whilst at fort what uh, fort sill uh, but people took training a little bit more seriously after that I do remember at uh, one point where you know it was later on a Friday and then we got word that we weren't getting released at normal time but rather the post commander was coming down to talk to us to our class in particular and everyone started thinking oh my god our, our orders are going to get canceled. We're all going to Iran. It's World War Three. What's going on? And then this, this, the post commander comes in and starts talking about the parking situation across Fort Sill. <laughs> and, it's, and it's kind of like, really, sir? We, uh, read the room. I mean, we couldn't say that, of course, post commander. But it was uh, that was a kind of, a, a, of an experience that kind of let me know, like, hey, this uh, this real army I've been hearing about for so long. It may be a lot like West Point. Huh. Imagine that. So, so, uh, so went, finished FAOBC, went to uh, Fort Polk and I got to Fort Polk while my squadron was at NTC. And I got there like two days before they came back. So came back and you know, they finished that training rotation and then we're all just kind of waiting around. And we had one troop that was in Kuwait uh, that had been been there uh for like six months beforehand just did not part any kind of combat mission but they were there and they then they they did not get extended. they did not they were not brought home they were told no 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 you need to stay here do rough security so it became pretty obvious <laughs> chain of command bless their hearts we're always like no 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 we don't we don't have any plans uh we're just gonna oh look JRTC has free land on Easter weekend everyone gets to the field because that's the only time we could ever get to the field was when, uh, JROTC didn't want the land. So, and I remember when all the connexes started showing up, uh, in the, or uh, near the, the parking lots. And we're looking at the, you know, the squadron S3 and XO. And we're like, sir, does this mean anything? Nope. 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 Doesn't mean anything. They're just connexes. <laughs> then next week, all right, start loading the connexes. and We're like, Oh, come on. Then, So, you know, uh, we did finally get deployed and uh, to ACR, the majority of my my squadron, we linked up with that one troop we'd had sent over there, been over there for many months and they had a piece of the drive up to Baghdad. But by the time we got to Kuwait, I remember being in the mess hall uh, with some other lieutenants and we saw George Bush land on that aircraft carrier underneath the Mission Accomplished banner. And I remember sitting there in the in the mess hall going, well, shit, there's not going to be anything for us to do now. And uh, I was wrong about that. So uh, we get to, and then we did the drive up to Baghdad uh, from Kuwait, no big deal. Get to Baghdad, and it was kind of like, it was a big question of, what are we doing here? And no one had a really good answer for what our mission was, because 3rd ID, uh, you know, they drove to Baghdad, and it seemed like as soon as they got to Baghdad and the Iraqis quit, Third AD kind of said, we need a break. And then, well, we, we showed up and then finally we, we you know, we got our little piece of the map and uh, my, I was a fire support officer for the anti-take troop uh for my squadron at the time. And they said, okay, Fox, um we're not using the guns. You are now the company intelligence officer ready to go. And I was like, what does the company intelligence officer do? Ready to go. Rogers are on it, on it. And so, you know, I did my best to figure out what, what would a company intelligence officer do and you know, got around to start, you know getting to know the Iraqis and getting to know the AO that we were in. And uh, our our first little fob was right up the road from the uh, uh, Tahrir Square, where they tore down Saddam's statue and uh, okay, Saddam's so legs. The... Say again? Eastern side of the river? Yeah, we were on the east side of the river, and uh, part of Saddam's legs were right in front of my fob. And you know, we, when we go on patrol, we give him a kick and keep on going. And so, and then uh, there's also uh, one point where uh, we had a, a protest right outside our gates because the Iraqis somehow thought that this little company-sized fob, attached, you know, right outside of a hotel, was was the place where all the Americans were making decisions. But we had a, we had quite the the protest one day in my. Company commander brings me out there, and I got the photo somewhere. He puts his, you know, we're, we're sitting in front of the fence. The, a bunch of Iraqis are on the other side. He puts his hand on my shoulder and says, Fox, you're going to go out there. And you're going to talk to him. If anything goes wrong, just hit the deck and we'll come get you. I'm like, Roger, sir. <laughs> so go out there. And <laughs> yeah, that's what he told me to do. And I was like, and I was like okay, fine, let's go. <laughs> and uh, so I get out there, and I, you know, who's in charge? Finally you know, talked to the guy, and they said that they wanted to give. And what the protest was is that they wanted to, the people who wanted, who, there was a group of people who wanted to work in that building, and they wanted the people who wanted to work, who were already working in there to get fired. And that's what they thought democracy was. And I was like, oh, boy, we got a long ways to go here. Yeah. Uh, so ultimately, no big deal. I said, look, give me your thing that you want me to give. Okay. And I said, all right, you can protest all you want, but you got to be on the other side of the street. And they seemed kind of surprised that they're like, you're not going to shoot us? I'm like, no, I'm not going to sh- it seemed like the, the expected violence, because that's what Saddam would have done. I just said, fine, I'll, I'll turn your, your request in. Just stand on the other side of the river, okay? And that worked pretty well. Mm-hmm. So uh, then then we kept getting uh, moved around. And finally, my squadron got put on this mission to, uh, because we were all Humvees. The Humvee, 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment, minus the armor. Um, and these were, this was the early days, so we had plastic Humvees with no doors on them. And my squadron right. was was a tasked to escort the transition authority all over Iraq, so we, which actually was a pretty good mission for us. And then I ended up going getting a big part of the supply part, and I had I ended up going up and down Route Irish. Did you ever go up and down Route Irish in two thousand three two thousand four? So two thousand three two
1: thousand four, I was in Third uh, Brigade One AD, so everything north of buy up to the the Arm of the Tigris we had okay. west of the west of the tigers so by up north up to basically taji
0: okay so so but did you ever get on route irish
1: um a little bit when we did go into okay. the green zone but for the most part it was uh, huskies and tampa
0: okay yeah for for those who don't know route irish was the road from the uh, baghdad international airport to the green zone and in 2003 2004 it was Probably the most dangerous road in the entire country. Uh, people got hit on that road all the time and killed. And I had a bunch of close calls on that road running supplies. And it was nothing quite like coming back from, you know, a, a nice, fun Iraqi summer day and, you know, getting out of the Humvee, you know, just nerves frazzled, thinking every single thing was going to blow up a, a, along the way and didn't. And then it's like, oh, thank God I'm back. And, and but, you know, you do that enough, and eventually your body just gets used to the stress. So I had that going for me after, like, six months. So, uh, but you know, we did that mission, and then we did the, uh, the transfer, the, tra- the handover we thought was just going to be for 12 months. But then right as we di- finished right C, left sea rise, did the whole transfer the guide on, here's your new mission. We had torch teams in Kuwait. We had all of most of our gear had been moved to Kuwait to get returned. And then this mm-hmm. guy named Sauter decided to have uh, a revolt through central Iraq, and my squadron of light arm light armed Humvees and some, uh, one part of First AD got tasked to go and deal with all this. So we're sitting there in Baghdad, and we're thinking, well, aren't we supposed to be home right now? Aren't we supposed to be driving to Kuwait to go home right now?" And you know, the, the commander said, "We're going. We're driving south. We're driving in a Kuwait-ish direction." we are going to stop at alkut and retake the city because ukrainians were too much too just giant pussies and didn't want to fight so we get to Al- we get to alkut there's a quite the firefight, fight which i i missed i was I, I was behind that uh we took the city the ukrainians were there and they seemed to just want to stay inside their little barracks and i remember it was this had this surreal sort of moment where i pull into the, the base with ukrainians on it and there's all this Russian equipment. And the Ukrainians wanted to have their picture taken with our stuff. And I'm like, MFR, you've got the BMP. Why aren't you? So anyway, so I was a little perturbed. But so we <laughs> we, we go to Kut. We get Kut under control. And then, then uh, the chain of command said, oh, back to Biop. And we're, we all drive back to Biop. We're like, we, we don't know what the hell's going on. I'll be going home now. No one knows. And I said, OK, we're driving south again. And we're going to stop in Najaf. We're like, oh, fuck. So we get to Najaf, and we and we get through, and we're, we're trying to get this city under control because Sodder's there, and had a, uh, there, there was a quite a, a long series of of running gunfights that the squadron was involved in. And mm-hmm. uh, there's one night where we had, so, hold on, let me, as a former military intelligence officer, let me try to tell this story so I don't have to move to Russia. So, we there was one day where we were planning on going out and doing this operation on the the east bank of the I think it's Tigris River, and we're all lined up, we're all ready to go. And then the battalion uh, intelligence NCO I see comes running out, arms waving with some papers in his hand. He runs up to the squadron commander's vehicle and, I, and he starts pointing furiously at the map. It's a lot of back and forth, back and forth. Squadron commander gets on the radio and says, "All right, return uh, back, return back to." Return back to the, the the parking lot, I forgot what it's called. Uh, we're not going out tonight. We're like, we're all sitting like. But I thought, all right, fine. So the next night we go back out. And this night, this time for the mission, we had an AC-130 in support, which turned right. out to be a good idea because uh, some of our intelligence collection assets had identified a bunch of uh, Haji's defensive positions alongside the river. So Haji, in his wisdom, had put his back to the river. Uh, when he was going to fight us so he fixed himself in place so, so our squadron just rolled up you know uh laid down machine gun fire and then here comes the ac-130 just circling and just boom 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 it was a great night for us not for them and so after that and uh was pretty much pacified and they said chain of command said good job everybody we need you to drive south and stop in we or like oh my god seriously so this is like month 14 of a 12-month deployment. Yeah. So we get we get to Diwenia where the Spaniards... No. Yeah. Freaking Spaniards Spanish. had a base and, El Salva, and the El Salvadorians had a base. And they said, okay, Fox, uh, you are now going to take over all the contracting that the Spanish had. I'm like, but I don't know how to be a contractor. You are now taking over all the contracts. Okay, sir. I get it. I get it. So I took over all these contracts... And, uh, and they, they told me sign contracts. We need to get this Iraqi army base or this Iraqi national guard base up and running. And the Spanish gave me, you know, their, their contracts that they had running and stuff like that. And so I was just sitting there, just, I was being the contract guy and also being the, the pay guy. And so when they, when the Spanish left, they had, uh, they abandoned a lot of office equipment that no one signed for. So, when you know, they had this office full, of, there, was a, there was a copy machine, all this great furniture, and I just so I'm like, I look at all this stuff. And I called the uh, the headquarters XO, I said, bring your truck, don't say anything, get your truck over here. So, he so the XO shows up with his couple of empty Humvees, and we just reappropriated all that excellent furniture, and now it became part of our squadron talk. It was, I was pretty proud of that. That was some, uh, I don't want. I I I can't say it was stealing. No one. It didn't belong to anybody. It was just there. So, you know. Um. So we ended up getting a really nice office set up from that. And then as the uh. As the pay guy, I had to fly up to Hilla and get several hundred thousand dollars in. Well, I got some cash from that for payment. And then later on, uh, because we paid all the Iraqis in cash. Uh, they said, "Okay, you have to have all the money transferred to this local DND bank, and then you go pick up the cash and you pay the Iraqis." And I'm like, "Okay, fine." So, so I, you know, I had my translator. I have him run by the bank every single day, and then finally he came back and said, "The money's there." So I, I grabbed two empty a bags, and uh, you know, just got it with another platoon leader. And said, "All right, take me to the bank." So we we drive out to the bank, and I walk in there. And I got my rifle and two big empty empty duffel bags. We've all, we're all armed. Walk in there, go in there, like, hi, hey, I need this much cash. You know, wrote it down, handed it to the person who ran the office. And then they brought out these giant bricks of dinar. Just yeah. huge stacks of dinar. And I'm, I'm putting it all in my bag in these A like It was like the most polite bank robbery ever. But, you know. <laughs> and, uh... and so I've got all, the, and I got like, I swear it must have been like 110 pounds of cash on my back. And as I'm walking out of the bank, it occurs to me that I'm inside in the middle of a city full of people that hate me. And I've got $100,000 plus of cash on me. And like I didn't think I could sprint with that much weight on me, but I could. And I did. And I, I sprinted into the Humvee realizing that I had just probably made the the biggest mistake of my life uh, by walking out there with cash in a light-skinned Humvee. And uh, I'd I, you know, get into the Humvee, drive, like, drive, 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 and raced away. The next time they did that, they had air support and and uh, Bradleys with them. So yeah. uh, that was not a smart decision on my part, but I lived to tell about it, so it was okay. And then I became the most popular man in all of Diwonea, because I had cash. So I was getting calls from these other government agencies like, hey, can you pay this guy? And I'm like, yeah, as long as he signs for it, fine. So that was kind of weird being the, the money man for central Iraq for a little bit. but And then finally, uh, we got uh, relieved and sent to Kuwait. And when we got to Kuwait, they said, all right, unload all of your stuff. We're like, no. We, no, you played this trick on us once before. So a lot of guys, you know, they kept all their good stuff until like the day before we got in, on the airplane. And then they, they'd all got thrown in the dumpster. And then we finally yeah. made it home after 15 months. Ugh. And, uh, and then after that. Um 2ACR kind of was getting redone because we abandoned all of our Humvees to uh, to, to be used in Iraq. And then they they said, hey, uh, all you 19 Deltas, you can go anywhere you want in the Army, uh, as long as it's one of these three posts. And then I uh, stayed there until it was time for me to go to the captain's career course. And I was also doing the, uh, the trying to do my branch, de- my branch transfer, where that finally went through. And... And then I go, to, I go to Huachuca, I get my clearance, and I finish the captain's career course at Huachuca, and then I, I stay around in the schoolhouse for a little bit. And then I got to go on this really amazing TDY for six months to Washington, D.C. to work on uh, uh the Office for the Administrative Review for the Detention of Enemy Combatants. You can tell a, a bureaucrat came up with that name. But it was this organization where they just looked through all the files of people who went who were at in uh, Guantanamo. And see, can we release these guys? Because, you know, there have been some uh, some bad press revolving detainees in Guantanamo. So, and then during that, I got put on, uh, I got to review the files on some really high value detainees. And I don't want to say any more about that. But that gave me a glimpse of how intelligence work was done outside of the army. And I saw that and I'm like, oh, I want to go there. And somehow my thought was, You know, I I saw this really amazing promised land that was not in the army. And my thought was, how do I get there while I'm still in the army? It never occurred to me, just get out of the army and put in an application, silly. No, it was like, I have to do this in the army still. And so I I talked to some people and they said, you have to deploy again. If you want to get considered for this other thing that we don't talk about. And I'm like, okay, where can I go? And they said, "Um, 3-101 at Fort Campbell. When can you leave? I'm like, "I, I got nothing. I can go now. So. I got to Campbell, I was a battalionist too, deployed again. And this time, uh, we, we knew it was a 15-month de- deployment at the very get-go. And so we were kind of like all mentally ready for that. And I had already done a 15-month or so. I was like, okay, I, I can do this too. And uh, But while we were getting ready to go, that's when the awakening happened. And for those who don't know, uh, the Iraqi Sunni tribes turned against Al-Qaeda in Iraq and the other militants and uh basically won the war for us by uh getting rid of al-qaeda through most of the country and really at that point the war was pretty much over for for in that section of the country and where we were at was officially referred to as the triangle of death um so I remember and this is also the, the same place where those three soldiers had been uh, kidnapped by uh, some rather talented uh Al-Qaeda-affiliated terrorists. Uh, one was recovered right away. The other two we didn't find for many months uh, later. And so I, I was thinking, oh, this is not going to be a great place to be. However, because the the awakening and these militias that had gotten rid of Al-Qaeda, the war was over. And you know I had to go and tell my chain of command, like, no, no, sir, we don't have to go fight anyone. We've won. All we have to do is not screw up. We just have to kind of manage this And then we get to go home and no one gets shot. And for infantry guys who have been rah, 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 kill everything. And that's all the training was about was like, let's let's go kinetic on everything. Trying to convince them we don't need to go kinetic. If we just keep paying these guys, no one will get shot and no one will get blown up. It's great. And uh, that was a harder sell for some folks. And later on, I got moved to be uh, the brigade commander's sort of engagement coordinator because he was going to all these meetings with Iraqis, uh, sheikhs and high muckety mucks and not knowing who they were. So I ended up kind of being his body man with every time the brigade commander went somewhere, I gave him a sheet of paper. Hey, sir, here's who you're going to talk to. Here are the topics that have been going on and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I would write up his whole meeting with that. and. It actually was, it was, that was a pretty interesting job. And even though I had to be in a helicopter a lot, which I did not like, I did not like helicopters at all, but. And I, I did have one, who was that meeting with? We had a meeting with a senior uh, guy named Abu Maruf. He was one of the, the higher ups in the, the Awakening. And though that write-up I did got to Petraeus. And I was like, no, oh, that's not so bad. Of course, Petraeus ended up, having some trouble later on but back then he was the he was the shit so and then um i went to i went home on leave for for my sister's wedding came back and then i found out i had been replaced as the brigade commander's engagement officer by a younger lieutenant with uh enormous well with amazing tracts of land if you're up in your money python and then i got put on a MIT team down in uh in uh And spent the last couple of months there, uh, uh, working with the hand in hand with the Iraqis there, and then that was the end of my uh, second deployment. Came back, and uh, re- <laughs> well, I, while I was there, I was like, I have had enough of the army. I want to go do uh, the the war on terror through uh, other means. And so, and I, I had submitted uh, before this. I had, you remember when they were doing the the captain's retention bonus? Yeah, that, that was so a great. Was, was like, uh, hey.
1: Go ahead. It was money, um, school, money. or post of choice.
0: Yeah, post of choice while you're deployed to Iraq. I thought that was a lousy option, but I went with school. <laughs> so I said, I told the Army, hey, I want to go to language school. You know, being an intelligence officer, it's a good idea to have language. And But while I was in Iraq, I'm like, you know what? No, I'm done here. I don't want it to be this anymore. And I put in my paperwork to get out. And the Army said, no, no, you have to go to language school. And I said, but I haven't been yet. I haven't incurred any kind of uh, like commitment, because I haven't gone yet, and, and the arm was like, you have to go to language school. I'm like, what? All right, fine. So I, instead of going for Farsi, I went for French, which was shorter. And then, so I went to DLI uh, for French. And then after DLI, they said, oh, they, then I, I got stationed in Korea where not a lot of French is spoken. And <laughs> So you, you, if you're, people are ever like, why don't you like the army? I just tell them that story. They're like, oh, yeah, now I, I kind of get it. You know, you teach them French and then send them to Korea. But so I, then I was in Korea. I was a brigade uh, S2. And that was it was right at, at the end as I was I had my replacement come in. I was getting ready to go on terminal leave. And I was uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Korea, but they had these places called the Ville. Which is this uh, a street full of shops and bars and whatnot that there to cater to the U.S. servicemen? And I was out there in the middle of the day in my uniform. I had sold off my my old my Korean cell phone, and as I was walking back in, this little old Korean lady comes out. Oh, she she you know she brings me into her shop. And she points at the TV, and on the TV I can see this island was uh, smoking, and I and I realized I saw on the map it was uh, a Island, which is which is. A, where the South Koreans have a lot of you know, ISR and some artillery there. And, it, it, oh, it had been attacked. I'm like, I, I better get back to work. So I, I jump in my car, run back to the office, and I get there, and I, and I, one of my soldiers was, was still there. I'm like, what's going on? He's like, what do you mean, sir? I'm like, what do I mean? Hold on. I go check the news, nothing. Like, Did I just imagine that? Run over to the colonel's Korean secretary. I'm like, could you check the news? She starts freaking out because she could see that the North Koreans have attacked this island. So I start making, you know, I didn't, I couldn't figure out where the heck the brigade commander was. I couldn't, I know everyone was gone. And I'm like, we're under attack. And I called the, I ended up calling the division G2. And I said, Hey, do you know the North Koreans are, are attacking right now? And they said, Oh, we'll look into it. I'm like, you'll look into it. You... <laughs> I figured that we, you know, 60 years of cop she cop duh, there would be like just a big old button to push. And then, you know, we go and react. And it uh, turns out that my brigade uh, chain of command and all the officers in the entire aviation brigade were in the post theater getting a classified briefing and none of them had their cell phones on them, which as it should have been. So I finally, I ran down there and then I, I you know, I, I see the colonel, the new brand new commander. He's talking and I, you know, sh- run down there, get his head, you know, you know, grab him by the, you know, not grab him, but you know, lean closer, like, sir, uh, the North Koreans attacked Waipedo Island, blah, 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 blah give him a quick, you know, updated what was going on. And then he turns around, repeats the same information. And I I got to look at all the officers. I could just see the wheels turning of everyone's going like, where is all of our stuff? And are we ready for this round? I could just, it was just to see all the officers immediately go through the planning process of react to invasion right now. That was, that was an interesting moment. And then I got yelled at by the S3 because I didn't tell him first that the North Koreans had invaded. I had, just gone to the commander directly so but you know he'd already signed my oer so i was fine with it but and uh (laughs) and then uh so then after that i i got out and um got a job in washington dc working at JITO, the joint ied defeat organization where i i spent a lot of time working on uh, efps and other anti-armor ieds and that was a, a pretty good job for a little while, and then the contracting world, did, uh, you know, the, con- the contracting world. Let me explain it for people who haven't been in that world. Is if you're a contractor working for the U.S. government, it's kind of like your ship has your wooden ship has crashed, and if you're a contractor, you found a piece of wreckage to hold on to, but eventually that starts to sink, and when that contract starts to sink, you gotta flounder around and find another piece of, of wreckage to hold on to until that sinks. You keep doing this over and over again until the lifeboat of retirement shows up. And as a younger younger guy uh, doing the contracting work, I realized this is not going to cut it. And but that didn't work out. And then I well, that contract ended. And then I got uh, another job in uh, back in Fort Wachuca working on the schoolhouse. And then I got there, and it was uh, my job. There was three contractors and one govey doing the work of like one person that would take him an afternoon. So, but there were four of us on this. So, and, uh, so I used that time to, uh, you know, I I got all my work done first and then I started writing because I was was kind of bored. I need something to do. So I was, uh, you know, when after I had my work done there, I would you know pull up the word document and start working on, uh, working on novels. And I looked so busy to everyone who who was walking by like that. Fox is on it. He's always just click, click away. (laughs) Yeah. And, but then that, that contract ended and right as that contract ended, my uh, main science fiction series called the Ember War took off and was able to supplant that income and then some, and uh, I've never worked an honest days since because uh, being a writer is just, uh, but I tell you what, as soon as you escape from the cubicle and you realize you don't have to go back, if you work really hard at the other thing, you don't want to go back to the cubicle. So I don't want to go back to the cubicle. So I keep writing the novels and, uh, you know, the, 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 the readers like it. And I've been writing full time for seven, seven years now. And I don't, I don't have any signs of stopping. So it's, uh, it's, it's good. Go ahead.
1: How'd you break in? I mean, there's, 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 whether they talk Hollywood or they talk, um, the great American novel, how did you break in with that novel to, to get it out and get it seen?
0: Well, it's I gotta thank Jeff Bezos and Amazon uh, and also Apple, because uh, what happened in about 2009, uh, Amazon had the Kindle come out, and then you could and you were as a self publisher, you could put your ebook on there, and people could find and read your ebook just as easily as they could find uh, and read an ebook from a major publisher, and so I had found this one guy's blog. Well, let, let me back up a little bit. I was on leave, and I was I was uh, watching the History Channel with my brother, and the Red Baron, there was a Red Baron show biography came up. And he looked at me and said, you know, there's never been a movie about the Red Baron. And I said, yeah, oh, you're right, there hasn't. Actually, there had been one by Roger Corman, but anyway. And so he and I said, well, let's write one together. I'm like, oh, okay. So I proceeded to teach myself how to write a screenplay, and I read all the books I could find about the Red Baron, and wrote a, a pretty... Decent script that, you know, got some attention in in a couple contests. But then I realized, boy, if you want to write uh, screenplays, you really got to know somebody to break in. That's way too hard. Uh, And then one day I came across this blog article by a guy named Joseph Conrath, where he laid out how he became a successful indie author and how much better it was to be an indie author than a traditionally published author. I'm like, oh, that's all you got to do is you got to have a, you know, one, a great book that's well edited, a cover that catches the eye. A blob, or excuse me, a blurb or the description that you know gets people to want to read it, and then you got to write a lot and you got to write quickly. I'm sitting there going, I could do all that. And so with the Ember War, I had a a story that was uh, pretty good. And then for one thing, is that the military science fiction genre, by and large, is underserved by uh, traditional publishers. It's considered a largely a male audience. And traditional publishers, uh, most of the time, they're just writing. They're they're getting books out for women because women are the vast majority of readers, except in military science fiction. Those are mostly guys that read that. So I was uh, provided some, some stories to an underserved market and built up uh, a readership and uh, just kept writing books. And it's uh, it's still going strong, and I'm having a, I'm having a really great time writing. I tell you, just sitting there making stuff up. And being able to work in, you know, kind of like little cute little stories, it's fun. And it's so much better than being in the Army. So for me, I mean, there's there's great folks out there who wake up every day and they say, I love the Army. I'm so glad I'm here. And God bless them because we need people like that. And I was not one of those folks. And I realized that I did not love the Army while I was in it. And I was not having a good time. And I, I was probably in a few more years than I should have been.
1: I mean that, that's a good transition because again military uh, and sci-fi. How much has your time at West Point, uh, your time in the military, and your time really in gi- uh, Jido and contracting? How much has that influenced um, how you write?
0: Well, it, it's one th- some a lot of times people will think well if you got a lot of this technical knowledge it must make you a, a better writer. Uh, not not so much because for everyone out there who's been in the military. Like for, for field artillery, I was a fire direction officer, or I was also in the, 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 fire direction cell. And it just like the words that happen in the fire direction cell, it's all numbers, acronyms and cursing. It makes perfect sense to people who are, who are artillery. But if you try to get a civilian to, to make sense of that, they'd be completely lost. So, uh, the important thing when you're writing novels is to realize it's entertainment and you need to be there to entertain. Now, for my status as a veteran who went to West Point and who's had all the experiences is that I can, you know, parlay all these things that I went through and put them into novels. And then a lot and then readers pick up on it and they're like, oh, wow, this is great. Now, you don't have to do that. There's what's his name? Tom Clancy, um, best-selling military thriller writer of all time, never wore uh, a uniform for a single day in his life. He just had a library card and like to read and he uh, wrote some excellent novels just because he did open source research and the amazing thing about Tom Clancy he's been dead for years and he's still putting out novels i just respect that work ethic how he's able to do that <laughs> but and a uh, but you know for for west point stories and like you know uh, things that I, happened, I went through in iraq um like when am my more uh more well-liked characters is a guy named standish who i did name after a classmate i haven't mentioned this to him yet but anyway that character is, is nothing but good things associated with it. but in this character standish he's that kind of that that soldier who never gets beyond e3 he maybe he gets to e4 but he gets demoted because he gets caught all the time but standish is that, that soldier who would you know if you need something you tell standish and all of a sudden it'll pop up you know um He's a, there was as we say in the army, there's no thief in the army except there's just one guy trying to get his stuff back. But Standish is that kind of character who's you know, involved in all the shady stuff, but has a heart of gold. And uh, it's amazing that as people have been reading the books, people say, Hey, I knew Standish. I or rather, I knew, I knew a guy just like him. And I've had people from who served in militaries in other countries who're like, Yeah, we had a Standish too. He was just like this. And it's like I'm starting to think that everyone knows a Standish kind of character or you know when they served and able to put to put that kind of a guy into the story was pretty simple because 2 ACR we did not have the best soldiers um and <laughs> it was after after we came back from our our first deployment we got an extra 1000 dollars a month uh bonus for those 3 months and some soldiers decided to use that cash to become cocaine dealers and they weren't very smart about it because they got caught right away and anyway different discussion so but also, uh, um, for for when I write, sometimes the plot can get very unwieldy. And but the, the important thing is I'm able to. I had to know how to explain this and present it to the to the audience so that this this like this problem that took me months to figure out just flows simply for them. And being an artili- an intelligence officer, I found helped out a lot with that because when I was the intelligence officer, I had to know every tribe. I had to know every shake. I had to know how these these tribes got along with each other or didn't get along with each other. I had to know who had government contracts and who didn't. And it was just, it was a lot of politicking all the way around. And I had to keep all this stuff in my head and be able to lean over to the commander and say, yeah, that's so-and-so's nephew. He got shot last week. He's not going to be happy with us. And then the commander's like, oh, I'm glad you told me this. So, and, uh, but, you know, keeping all those, all those balls up in the air, Uh, you know, West Point, field artillery, military intelligence and deployments all have proven to be very helpful and useful when it comes to writing, you know, action and writing more convoluted sort of things, which, you know, authors who have trouble with this sort of thing will, you know, you've ever, you've seen shows where you're like, this is bad. And in every show, I think it just comes down to bad writing. And so I, I strive to be a good writer and put in, you know, uh, plot lines and characters that are entertaining at all times. And it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's always a lot of work to, to do, but, you know, it, it also can be fun. And there's been uh, also one thing. Uh, so when I was at in my f- yuck year, I had a history uh, professor named Professor Kiesling. Did you ever have her for history? I think i
1: had her husband but i'm not 100 okay. sure i don't i don't remember her specifically
0: well she she uh so she, i liked her and we, we were talking about uh leadership military leadership in fiction and she said you need to read this book by david weber called on basilisk station and it's the, it's the honor harrington series and I, so i, I picked mm-hmm. that up, read it and proceeded to read like 10 15 more books in this series and they're all excellent and that gave me a really strong foundation for military science fiction and space opera and years later i run into david weber at a conference and you know told him the story about how i've i've actually now written a book with david weber called governor and i dedicated it to professor keesling and we still have like three more books in this series to work on I, i'm behind but you know so so you know going to west point and having my that one professor say should read this book you it's, know it's really interesting to you put me down a pathway that has since now you know given me a, a really happy life that I've, I've got right now so i'm really thankful for professor kiesling for recommending that book to me
1: so so two follow-on questions and i'll hit the first one um and then i'll hit the second one later so the first one is that moral component um I've been geeking, uh, geeking out on several of your books, and there's definitely a moral strain and a moral component, um, in your uh, in your storylines. Um, talk me through wh- why you put that in there, and, and, and really the impact in your head as you're as you're identifying what things do we want to talk, and why do I want to speak about them in in my in my stories?
0: Okay, yeah, it's so when I when I was on that uh, Tdy to DC for six months. Uh, I, I got a look behind the curtain for how some things that the United States intelligence community does. I got a really good look behind the curtain. And it was just kind of like, oh my God, we do that? And like, you don't think these things are real, but sometimes they are. And so, and I was sitting there and I I was looking at all the things that the U.S. government had done and I'm sitting there thinking, was this okay? Well, I look at the who the bad guys who were involved. I'm like, no, this was, this was acceptable. This saved lives. These, you know, so you had, I had, you was looking at all this information where these essentially immoral actions were saving lives. So I was going, gosh, is, is it moral or is it not moral, to save a life? kind of, it, it got me thinking. It's like, well, you know, what is acceptable? And then also, you know, at what point do does your morals get in the way of doing what is the right thing or does doing what you know is not the right thing save lives? And it's kind of like, gosh, man, this this is tough. This is a very difficult question. I think no one really has a good answer for. And it's it's good to have people have that discussion before it's time to make a real life and death decision. So if you can sit there and go, here's this problem, uh, this you know this sort of moral situation that these characters have found themselves in. How would you react? And then if you got the time to sit there and ruminate on the right decision, you can probably make Make the, the correct decision, but rather if it's, you know, you've got, you know, so you've got this, this, uh, terrorist, the, the classic example of, you know, he's put a bomb somewhere, uh, is going to blow up and kill innocent people. What do you do to find out where this bomb is within the next, you know, however much time you have left? Tough question. And so, you know, putting those sorts of problems into books is, is helpful for everyone because you, 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 you know, you have the discussion before you have to have it. If that makes any sense. I remember a yeah. lot of times at West Point, you know, I, we had one, one class, military professional class where they, they put on that one scene from uh saving private Ryan, where the, you know, they, they let the, the German soldier go and then he comes back and ends up shooting a bunch of our heroes. And then at the end, you know, the, the one cowardly soldier, soldier shoots the guy in cold blood. After he after he surrendered, it's kind of like, well, what was the right thing to do here? Because you saw you you let this guy go now, he might come back later and shoot you. Versus, do you kill the prisoner so he can't come back and shoot you later? What was the right situation to go through all this? It's kind of like, and, you know, it's good to have these sorts of discussions. And for me as the writer, I prefer to you know pose the question to the reader, have characters take different sides. And then not give the reader my answer, because if you do that, then the reader immediately spots where, you're pre- where the author is preaching, and then the, the whole value of uh, the discussion is lost. So it was. Uh, so it, it, you, I, I like to put those in there just so that people can stop and think, what would I do in this situation? Which is really is kind of the whole point of fiction, is you know, is you get to have the sort of vicarious problems and not actually have to deal with it. And then the follow-up question is, um, the
1: characters you write about, um, the humanity and the ability uh, for the reader to relate to them Um, in your interactions with your readers, um, does that ring true with with veterans and with uh, your readership, that the way you portray, although they are soldiers in the future and space marines, does it ring true to the way that you write and the way that they receive them?
0: Yeah, I, I don't think there's too much of a difference. Because I, if you go back to a Roman legionnaire, they're going to be, they're going to have a lot of the same sort of problems and gripes that a soldier does now. I mean, if, if, you, if, I, if I told you that there's a soldier sitting on the side of the road throwing rocks at a tree, w- what, what century is he from? It could be any century, because soldiers are always going to be doing that. They're always going to be throwing rocks. Soldiers are always going to be complaining about pay and food and pretty sure their chain of command is but a bunch of bunch of morons. And they're all scared of death and they all just want to go home and, you know, call up that one girl that, you know, they had a relationship with that one time. And so you know, it's, it's understanding that, you know, humanity is by and large doesn't change too much. It's just the window dressing. So and, and knowing that and then having that kind of military history background. You know, it's. It, I know that if I have soldiers have the same kind of problems I went through, and my soldiers went through, it'll resonate. Like I had, I had one character who ended up having a, a child he didn't know about until he started, until he realized that his pay was getting docked. And I was like, well, oh, that's uh, that certainly happened to people before. And then I had uh you know, I had I had the, his commander say, "I've been a captain for less than a week. I'm already having baby mama drama," which I think a lot of captains out there have have dealt with. So it's, it's good that, you know, the problems that soldiers have now are the same problems soldiers will have in the future, just with different details.
1: I think as we're getting close to the end, um, I, I, the most important or the, the last question I have is you're at 48 books. Uh, you've covered a lot of topics. Um, what topics are left that you want to address uh, and where to?
0: Oh, boy, I I don't know when I can ever stop. I've got like this big old word document full of just ideas. But I do have one series I want to do that is absolutely a tragedy. And I will tell the audience that this is a tragedy. And if somehow Shakespeare figured out, if you tell people that at the beginning, they won't get as bad. He did that in Romeo and Juliet. But so if I'll tell the readers, look, this is a tragedy. And the tragedy is all about a soldier who you know kinda gets trapped in war he gets trapped in the violence he can't ever find a way out except towards the end and it's, it's going to be a sci-fi series or it is, you know, like it's gonna be dark man meets robocop meets universal soldier and i've had this idea for years and years i have just been waiting for for you know just the right time to get it i, I think I, I could probably start on that next year so if i get everything else done first but then also you know i, I want to write some fantasy novels i've got some really I got one really solid fantasy novel in me. And then I'm also going to do uh, a series. It's called, it's called Wargate, where a uh, modern military gets put into a sort of a fantasy situation. And that's been selling really well for some authors. I know who've been doing it. So I want to have world war one fighter squadrons fighting dragons and griffins. The cover is going to be freaking metal. <laughs> so, but the story is going to be, I can't wait to do the story either. So, you know, it's, it's uh I, I can't wait to just get all of my books done, but oh my gosh, there's so much time. It takes so long to write all these words. Gosh darn it. That's awesome. Um
1: really that 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 kind of blew my mind right. There. <laughs> um so really just to wrap it up, um number 1, thank you very much for your time today, uh Rich. And um as, as you reflect back on the last 20 years, um, with, with West Point, your military experience and obviously, uh, the, the, the great opportunity and, and the great, um, performance you've had with, uh, with writing books and success, success there. Um, what, what are the key takeaways you you want to just kind of leave the, the audience with?
0: You know, it, do what you love because if find what you love and, and do that, or as, um, as a not Joseph, yeah, Joseph Conrad said, find your bliss. And that really, once I figured out to, how to do that, my life got a lot better and I'm, I'm so much happier for that. And, you know, and also you know, my time in the army and my time at West Point, I would not rate it as the happiest time of my life, but you know what? I gained a lot of, uh, real valuable skills my, and, and, uh, lessons that have been, uh, I've been serving me in my, where I am now in life, and I'm thankful for them. I don't know if I would trade them, but, you know, they, they have happened, and I am where I am today because of those experiences. And I've got a beautiful wife and three great kids, and I'm living in Las Vegas, having a, a pretty decent time of it. And, you know, as much as I didn't like things I went through in the past, uh, they got me where I am today, and I'm glad that I was, you know, I got through to the other side. And for everyone out there who may be going through some harder parts, you know, find out what you love and find out how to get there.
1: I think that's a great note to end it on. Uh, Again, thank you for your time, Rich, and uh, you have a good day.
0: Yeah, you too. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please give us five stars and follow our podcast. It helps us gain visibility and helps us share our stories.